Today's episode of The Keith Law Show is brought to you by Dugout Mugs, a company started in a college baseball dugout, hence the name Dugout Mugs. The barrel of a baseball bat turned into a 12-ounce mug. It's licensed by MLB, so your favorite team can be laser engraved onto a birchwood baseball bat barrel mug. It's perfect for the big game to put on display or to be the life of the party. It's a unique gift for any baseball fan. So if you're just glad that baseball is back and looking for some way to celebrate it, go to dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and use promo code MLB30 for 30% off your first purchase. That's dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and code MLB30. Keith Law, and welcome to episode 23 of the Keith Law Show. Today I'll be joined by Dr. Paul Paulus, a psychology professor just retired from the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, he authored a very interesting paper on the relationship between diversity and creativity that I happened to find uh, recently while looking for something on the for papers on the subject of diversity and how diversity can help an organization. Since that, uh, I think, is a particularly major issue for baseball specifically and for sports in general. Uh, before we get to that, I have to comment as I'm recording this on Monday afternoon, we have seen an, an outbreak of COVID-19 among Miami Marlins players. They have canceled their home opener for tonight. As of right now, nothing else has been canceled. I have said multiple times so far in the last week or two that I felt there was a less than 50% chance that we would be able to complete the season without incident. I think it, it, on at least one radio appearance, I said about one in three chance. Uh, I was called a pessimist for that. I did not argue. I think I'm pessimistic by nature, at least in terms of this pandemic and our ability to deal with it. Uh, this feels like the beginning of the end, and I'm not trying to be histrionic about this, but I think now that we've had one team outbreak, despite what appears to be everyone's best efforts to control the spread of the coronavirus within the clubhouse, we're going to have another. It feels inevitable that we will have another, and then we would have another after that, and that there isn't actually a way to stop or even control it at this point. Again, I would like to be wrong. I wanted to be wrong the first time. But even as somebody who loves baseball, has been very happy to see baseball back. I've been watching baseball as much as as much as ever, probably watching more Major League Baseball now. I have no minor league games to watch. Um, finding things to focus on in the various Major League Baseball games. Uh, and also somebody whose livelihood revolves around there being Major League Baseball. I am pretty close to the point myself of just saying, call it off. It's not worth the risk. Someone is going to get very seriously sick and have long-term consequences, if not worse, if Major League Baseball continues. Again, I would like very much to be wrong. And I fully acknowledge that I am not an infectious diseases expert or an epidemiologist. I will say, however, it appears that epidemiologists and infectious diseases experts were all generally skeptical on the possibility of baseball coming back safely, not saying it couldn't be done, but saying that it would be difficult. And it seems that their predictions, based on one outbreak so far, are probably coming true. I would love for this to be the end of the outbreaks, but given the difficulty of containing this virus and uh, the continually deteriorating situation across the country, particularly in the South and, and in some of the West, but really across the entire country now, where cases and deaths continue to increase and states are simply not taking enough steps to try to contain it. 
I feel like it's extremely unlikely that we can get through another 50 odd games, let alone any sort of playoffs without continued outbreaks. And I would not want to see baseball continue pushing forward with a schedule, even in the face of the spread of the virus, just because they're waiting for someone to get really sick or for someone to die. Not only is that really bad business, it feels kind of immoral. My guest today is Dr. Paul Paulus, who just retired after 51 years at the University of Texas Arlington, where he served as a professor of psychology, dean, associate dean, and department chair. His areas of research have included innovation, creativity, and collaboration. Uh, Dr. Paulus was born in Amsterdam, and during World War II, while he was a child, his parents hid Jewish families in their home in a hidden space under their kitchen floor. Dr. Paulus, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. So I found you because I found a paper that you co-authored with Karen Van Der Zee and Jared Kenworthy a couple of years ago called Cultural Diversity and Team Creativity, which is a particular interest of mine in terms of diversity or lack thereof in sport. So first, I'd just like to ask you, can you tell me how you folks defined both creativity and diversity when conducting this research? Well, it's defined in various ways. We do mostly controlled studies on their in laboratory conditions. So we look at the number of ideas people generate, we look at the quality of the ideas in terms of novelty and feasibility. Uh, and uh, people in the field tend to look more at other broader products, often rate how novel these products are. So they often can get objective measures in field settings. But to look at the generated novelty of ideas that people come up with or products. And the diversity can be very, uh, there's demographic diversity, which is of interest today a lot in terms of gender and race and ethnicity. There's also expertise, uh, people who have more expertise, experience in one area or the other. And there's been a real uh, big difference between the effects of expertise diversity and demographic diversity. Now, I know within the paper, you talk a lot about survey data, about talking to people about their experiences working in teams, diverse or, or not diverse. Uh, do you find that that data is reliable in terms of just asking people about their experiences, especially about something that can be a bit inherently subjective, like creativity? Well, I tend to be skeptical uh, about it uh, because, you know, like we did a, have a diversity scale we developed and had people answer it. And in fact, everybody loved diversity, right? We're not sure that's mm -hmm. true, but they all say, <laughs> yes, yes, we're high. There were very few low, although we still got variation from you know, on a five-point scale from three, but most people were three or above. And maybe that's true because we have a very diverse campus. Uh, but uh, the, the data on objective performance is a little bit different than, than on self-report performance because people rate themselves as brighter than average, right? Everybody's smarter than average. And uh, people who rate other people's performance may be biased by who they are rather than what they're doing. So there are all kinds of biases that come in. And studies have shown that the real biases in terms of perception of people's performance as well as just self-ratings. So we like to look at objective measures of diversity and objective measures of performance to kind of see what's really going on, get rid of the kind of uh, uh, you know, self-presentation aspects one of the early paragraphs in your paper that kind of sums up uh, some of the conclusions that you then explain uh, throughout the rest of the paper, you say there's little evidence of beneficial effects of demographic and cultural diversity on team performance in general. So first, I'd just like to ask, too, you, you, uh, you define diversity a along a couple of different ways. There are types of diversity that your research shows do help performance, but simply having a more racially diverse group or a, a more gender diversity does not improve team performance. Am I stating that correctly? Correct, yeah. If you have age diversity, tenure diversity, uh, and uh, you know, 
age of uh, race diversity is studied a lot as well as gender diversity. You don't get much for gender diversity, race diversity sometimes. Uh, you do get difference in what we call functional or expertise diversity, the kind of background you have, your expertise does seem to make a difference, which is no surprise, of course. And the reason why we don't get much diversity effects for demographic factors is probably, partly because it may not be relevant to certain kinds of tasks, right? So if you're doing a task on mathematical tasks, computer science tasks, what's the matter whether you have gender diversity or ethnic diversity? But if you're talking about how to make a university a little bit more uh, amicable for people from multiple cultures, I think diversity and maybe gender diversity becomes more important. Um, that we talk about a task relevance. Is the task relevant to diversity? So if you have a setting that has to do with a broader population and how you deal with the broader populations, whether it be in, in the sports or whatever, having a diverse group of people can bring up many more diverse ideas. So we find, in fact, that diversity of, of gender or ethnicity or just background diversity can have a positive uh, effect on creativity if the task is relevant to that kind of diversity. Just following on that, as as you're saying this, what I'm picturing in the baseball context in particular. So it, baseball front offices are pretty homogenous. They're overwhelmingly white and even more overwhelmingly male. And in terms of task relevance, the decisions that baseball or sports teams in general that we ask them to make are often around evaluating players, evaluating individual players or comparing players. Do we want player A or player B? Do we trade player A for player B? Those player pools tend to be much more diverse than the pools of people who are actually making the decisions. So I know you don't have specific expertise in, in sports decision making, but does that at least sound like it's the kind of task where there would be functional relevance? That I mean, more diverse decision makers would make sense because you're asking them to look at a very diverse pool of people and make evaluations of those people's skills and projections. I think definitely. I think any sport like that, you have not only picking people, judging people, but also the broader audience for the sport, right? Mm -hmm. well, how do you market? So I think having that kind of expertise, diversity expertise is important. The problem with it is that if you have diverse people, often they tend to be different from the people who were there before. They may, the people there before are older, maybe more likely male, mm -hmm. more likely white. And so when you come as a minority, a female, uh, you're younger, you may be a little bit more liberal. So you differ on, on many dimensions, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you're also a newcomer. And newcomers have also have to accommodate themselves for a while to, to be heard. So all those things work against being heard, being attended to. And so the critical thing is for the environment to be receptive. So the people who are hiring have to be receptive to then being the authority which intimidates them. It has to be a sense of psychological safety. You're new. I know you're a newcomer. You have different ideas. And all we know is that newcomers tend not to be liked. When they, especially if they have different ideas and conflict is hated. So, and we also know for creativity, newcomers uh, are very good for creativity and conflict is very good for creativity. Dissent is very good for creativity, but dissent, newcomers and conflict are not liked. So you have to have people who have kind of an openness to conflict, openness to this kind of hearing out. So it's not only the people you bring in, but also the people who are there have to be receptive. I have been that newcomer with new ideas. Now, I did not have the added disadvantages of demographic or no. being demographically different than the people I was working with. But even so, coming in with new ideas and probably not doing a great job of presenting myself as being uh, complementary as opposed to maybe contrary to what yes. was happening. Yes. 
Uh, let's just say I, I think I shoulder much of the blame for maybe not blending in right away. I think the blending in thing is a key, right? And we, we did a study actually on mm-hmm. on uh, expertise in sports just with students. Uh, we put together a team of people who loved sports, did a lot of sports, and a team that was heterogeneous, two high sport fanatics and two low sports interest, low sport interest, and have them come up with different sports, new sports. And uh, guess which team was the worst? The heterogeneous team. They, they had the worst idea to talk to each other. The high expertise group was actually also very bad. The best ones were the low expertise. They were creative, came up with all kinds of great new ideas uh, about new sports. And so I think that's why if you hire someone, I, I heard one of your prior programs about who you hire as a coach. If you just focus on a particular kind of expertise, that, that, that may be kind of narrow. You want to pick someone with broad experience who can bring broad perspective, not just one dimensional. And these people who maybe weren't interested in sports, but had great ideas for making sports more interesting. It sounds to me like you would recommend an approach then when in terms of whether it's hiring or simply taking people within your organization to put together teams, then you may be looking for demographic diversity, racial diversity specifically, but also that bringing in this racial diversity may bring experience, experiential diversity, uh, educational diversity, yes. people who just bring different ideas because they have different backgrounds in addition to just maybe looking different. Right. And uh, I think you have to have the, there has to be experience in it because, uh, you know, uh, people often fail. I mean, most people, uh, most presidents of companies fail, most presidents of universities fail. And so maybe most newcomers may fail, but you have to keep pod going and all of a sudden you find somebody who's really good who really has a great way of connecting expressing themselves so i think you overhire you hire and find the people that really seem to connect and be able to come up with the ideas and build on these ideas because there are people who are kind of generators people who are builders people who are evaluators the different kinds of skills you need someone who generates someone who builds and someone who can evaluate these ideas what is the best approach to take and people have different styles different abilities one of the other sentences that jumped out at me from the paper, and you explore this quite a bit over the over the entire work, uh, you see racial diversity in groups was related to the generation of more ideas, but not the quality of ideas. Obviously, you have a lot more detail on that. I just find that inherently fascinating because as somebody who I had a bit of a career in the corporate world, including time consulting, where um, right out of college, where brainstorming, simply generating ideas was seen as good. All ideas are good ideas. There are no such thing as bad ideas. And I was a child in relative terms at the time, but I would sit there thinking, wait, some of these are actually bad ideas. Like, I think many of these are bad ideas. And you talk about idea quantity versus idea quality. So can you just explain a little bit maybe how you distinguish between the two? And is it just, is there an inherent benefit to simply having more ideas, even if some of those new ideas just aren't very good? Yeah, they say, what we tend to find is, more ideas, more good ideas. Okay, so it does work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the longer you keep going, the more novel the ideas become. So people run out of steam, right? They're, they're tired after 10 minutes. No, no, keep keep going because the longer you go, the more likely really novel ideas come about. The problem is, is what you do with those novel ideas and who can pick them. We tend to look for ideas that we agree on that are more common or more feasible. And, and the more novel ones tend to be ignored. So even though you generate a lot of novel ideas, they often aren't picked up by people. Uh, and in fact, in the expertise study, the high expert people in sports tend to not to like novel ideas nearly as much as other people. So you have to have people who can generate and who can then also take novel ideas. Plus, you know, these crazy novel ideas mm-hmm. uh, can be modified, elaborated. The key thing in 
creativity is elaboration. Take something like a diamond, right, it's rough, and work on it and make it beautiful. That's what you've got to do. And even in uh, uh, MIT, they, they say often people come up with crazy ideas, so crazy that, wow, they might be true, right? <laughs> or they might be useful, right. and they do. And so you've got to be unbridled uh, initially, and then you become realistic and take them and try to work on them over time. So it's initially you want to get the pump going. You want to get ideas out, more novel, and lay them on the table, unique ways to sort through them and come up with the ones that uh, uh, seem really interesting, work on them, build on them, elaborate them, and then see which ones come, are, are really of good quality. That's a novel, feasible, and potentially impactful, right? Really bring the fans in the baseball, really affect uh, diversity of people. So you pick ideas that really have an impact on your on the interest in, of the media, interest of the players, interest of uh, you know, a broader diversity of the population. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com law. That's GetRoman.com L-A-W for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. I don't want to jump too far to a conclusion here, but I, as you're describing this to this experience of particularly high expertise groups not being good for idea generation or simply rejecting novel ideas out of hand, that sounds to me like, in, at least in the sports world, we talk about purists, people who want the sport to look like it did 50 or 100 years ago, to which I'm guilty of a bit of purist thinking myself, but I also say, you know, 100 years ago, we had only white players. So obviously some things have gotten better with change. I mean, is that... Do you think that's the one of the main factors why these low diversity groups might be worse for idea generation, that it's too much, it's like hidebound thinking or, or an inherent appeal to tradition. This is how things have always been. We don't like anything that violates our sense of tradition. Well, plus we have this data on polarization. The people, they, they go to similarity. People love similarity, right? We all hang around with people, you know, the same religion, same politics, uh, ethnicity. We tend to go for... Uh, homophily. We tend to like that. And when you get together that way, you also tend to think the same way. And the more you talk, like you get more polarized, just like people in the streets, you know, today, they're very polarized because they talk to each other, they listen to each other. And so groups, when they talk to each other, become even more extreme than they were before. So if you have a group of people who have particular attitudes, bring them together, they become even more stronger in their attitudes. And it can be a good thing or a bad thing, depends on your perspective, right? More conservative, more liberal. Uh, based on their interaction. So I think that inhibits creativity, having people together because you simply focus on what's already there, what you like, what you're comfortable with. And, and, and uh, most people, novelty is very, yes. you know, is going to work. Uh, and so uh, you're safe with what's worked before and trying something really new is a scary thing for many organizations like baseball. You also mentioned in the paper that this was one of the things that particularly surprised me, that members of more diverse teams, when asked afterwards about their experience, tend to have more negative things to say about the experience on the team. Even if the teams were creatively more productive, they would come back and say something negative. I think you said negative perceptions of their team was your phrasing there. And I'm, I have many questions about that, but I'm 
particularly curious just sort of generally what what did people say was it the fact that there was just more conflict because there was diversity and therefore more differing point of views at the discussion table very interesting people's liking for a process or their perception of it may not be related to the quality of it at all so people come out of a session you know because like again in the literature if you look at the social psych literature it says oh you have to have conflict you have to have minority perspectives you have to have uh, you know uh diversity well diversity is uncomfortable i observe groups in, in my lab as they come together and ethnic diversity people can sit separately they tend to not look at each other they tend to be a while before they're comfortable but again these people are new they haven't met each other before so it takes a while to develop that comfort level so you need experience with each other and trust to develop the comfort level and so i think most of these people come out by you know it's a little uncomfortable i was a little bit nervous a little anxious uh, and I was afraid to say what I thought because I might be offending somebody, right? So there's a lot of anxiety, and you're worried about being intelligent. I want to be smart. I want to look like I'm really uh, creative. And all those pressures of being creative, looking good to other people, and not other people is a stressful task. So afterwards, maybe they've been creative, but they sort of activity. Much rather to sit around BSing with people like myself, right? Right. And, and not doing anything creative, but just having a good time. So do you think on, on the other side, so we, let me give a, a moment of context here. Within baseball specifically, and I think within other sports, there's often talk about whether a team has good chemistry or whether it has a good clubhouse, uh, which amounts to the same thing. I have personally, as someone who loves the sport but did not spend any time in the sport when I was younger, uh, have always been a bit skeptical of that. Like everybody getting along doesn't necessarily make you a better team. And maybe everybody gets along better if you're just winning, right? Winning may breed good chemistry. At the very least, this is a very hard thing for people to measure. People report on it, oh, this team has great chemistry, but we don't really know. So have you found at all that just having this kind of – I think you refer use the term climate a lot in your paper. That right. a good climate is good for creativity or maybe is it good for other measures of productivity? I think having a climate of trust, of safety, generally speaking, people feel relaxed, they feel open, they feel that they can be open with each other. I think that's a healthy thing. Uh, the issue of cohesion, which is maybe also this issue, like we really get along with each other, this, this kind of, you know, is positive. It's related to better performance, but also it can relate to, like in, in creativity, to people loafing or to people uh, not uh, exerting themselves. For example, cohesion, at least the group think. People kind of want to agree with each other. You don't want to dissent with each other. So tell somebody, wait a minute, I think you're wrong. Uh, you took, you don't upset the cohesion. So having too much of a good, you know, cohesive bulb in the team may not be that good because you want people to say, wait a minute, you're you're sloughing off. You got to do this. You got to do that. And you got to be open to that rather than everybody just getting along, right? Uh, there has to be kind of a mixture there to tell the truth to each other, be honest with each other and have the safety, then that's by a better environment. Then everybody thinks, oh, we love each other. You mentioned that. I'm glad you brought up the cohesion point too, because you mentioned that a few times in the paper, including at the end where you talk about some of the practical implications. And you mentioned that in the context of diversity as well, that having a culturally diverse team is not, it may be necessary, but it is certainly not sufficient. There must be, I'm reading from your paper here, an effective exchange of unique perspectives. And team members must be highly motivated to take advantage of this diversity. So if you were advising any company, sports team or otherwise, you know, they may simply say, well, yes, we have diversity. We have diversity initiatives. We have Many companies have a DEI department or group within HR to encourage this. But it sounds like that's not really enough. There must be more of a 
process in place or maybe there are prerequisites to get more out of the diversity so that your teams or, or departments are thus more creative? Good point. We have one of the most diverse campuses in the country. Uh, in our campus, we're majority minority. The recent study we did, we had like 30% people were white. The rest were all kinds of other, other groups. And so that's why we can do study for diverse people. But even on campus, when I see people around, they're running around with people of their own type. You see women together, uh, uh, blacks together, people from the so South America together, Asians together. Uh, but they still bump into each other. But they don't have the kind of environment where they have to really tell them, say, hey, what do you really think about this? So there's no challenge in really working together. So my suggestion to the university was we got to get people together, give them place or opportunities to work con through conflicts, to work through difficult situations together, to learn how you work together with people. Uh, there's a famous uh, study called Jigsaw Puzzle uh, study done in Austin that was really critical to help minority kids feel confident about themselves. And each person had a particular role to play so that the, the minority kid had to teach other people certain things. And when the minority kid had a teacher role, they became much more confident and their grades went way up. So the key thing is for people to be able to play roles and practice roles of working with each other and discovering how you re relate to each other. So you learn not only to hang around in a diverse environment, but how to function, how to do difficult tasks in a diverse environment and develop skills, how you work with diverse populations. I have one other question for you that is actually completely unrelated to our discussion, but reading about your background, I watched a video that you did where you explained what your parents chose to do, the, the risk yeah. they took, the sacrifice, which was really wonderful. It reminded me, I watched a Dutch movie a couple of years ago called The Resistance Banker. I don't know if you've heard yes, of this. Yes, I've seen that. I've okay. seen that. that was, I knew nothing of this at all. I saw it because it was the Dutch... Uh, their national submission for the Academy Award for Best International Feature Film. And, and I was fascinated. I learned a lot. It's always a good movie, but particularly for just teaching me about something I knew absolutely nothing of beforehand. I was curious if you'd seen it. I'd seen it, yes. Yeah. It, uh, it's shaped my life. You know, like I say, you know, for me, you know, they were willing to sacrifice themselves and me for the sake of strangers, right? Yes. That, that, that makes you humble. I'm sure. I am. Uh, I'm sure that video was really. Uh, I enjoyed watching you speak about their experience. Thank you. My guest today again has been Dr. Paul Pallas. He has just retired after 51 years at the University of Texas Arlington, where he was a professor of psychology. Dr. Pallas, thank you so much for joining me today, and congratulations on your very well-timed retirement. Thank you much. Enjoyed it. That's all for the show this week. Thank you all for listening. I want to thank all those of you who have bought my new book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. The response has been really wonderful. If you have not picked the book up or if you want to buy 10 more copies, you can buy it anywhere fine books are sold. Please check and see if any of the local bookstores in your area are open, maybe for curbside pickup. They could really use our support. If you don't have one, I recommend bookshop.org. The last I checked, they did still have my book in stock. You can also buy an ebook or an audiobook through them. They're, they give a portion of their proceeds to help support independent bookstores as well. Uh, if you listen to this show on iTunes or any place else that allows you to leave a review, please do so. I always appreciate a five-star review. I see many of you have done so on Apple Podcasts. I've read your comments. Again, I really appreciate all of them. If you are not currently a subscriber to The Athletic, there is a promotion going on at this point. Uh, you can go to theathletic.com slash claw. That's my nickname, theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W to get 40% off of a new subscription. I am still writing. I had two pieces go up last week. Uh, I had a season preview and then notes on top 100 prospects who made opening day rosters. 
I am almost finished with another piece that I believe will go up on Tuesday. Some scouting notes just from watching on TV, some of the major rookies and young players who've appeared so far this year. I'll have Corbin Burns, Dustin May, Anthony Kay, Luis Robert, and a couple of other players in that post. So I've still got content. And of course, if you subscribe, you will get all of my draft coverage, all of my top 100 prospects and my preseason prospect rankings as well. They're all behind the subscription wall. You get it all for one price. And if you're interested in advertising on the show, you can do so by going to theathletic.com slash podcast ads. That's all for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Wear your masks. Stay safe, everyone.